0: So look around our audience tonight. I don't think I will give any new information or news to you if I were to remind you that the Bible commands us to rejoice always. Always. Now, that suggests immediately that discontentment is a sin and should be treated as such. Discontentment is the great enemy of joy, discontentment that is rooted in selfishness, self-seeking individuality. If I notice a time when I am not rejoicing, I should repent and immediately seek to bring back a joyful, contented spirit. Rejoice always, and Paul says in Philippians 4, and again, I say, as if to make sure we understood it, Rejoice. First Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice evermore. Evermore. Always. This is the consistent exhortation of Scripture. Um, David says in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Again, the idea is to have a continual spirit spirit of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Okay, so this is to be the overwhelming consistency and clarity of the Christian life. Now, I pause to say we all know the challenge that is. Why sometimes are we in such interminably bad moods? Why are so often we are so grumpy? We feel so discontent with the state of things, and not content. We are not radiating joy, but something altogether. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit tonight, but first I want to note that if you were to identify the great theme of the Bible when it comes to the subject of joy, I doubt that you'd be looking very much in the Old Testament. And I certainly don't suspect that you'd be looking in the Mosaic Law, Because at least one way that I might naturally think about the Mosaic Law, that stuff's about just obedience. Grit your teeth and obey and do it. At least that is a way that we might ordinarily think about the Mosaic Law. That was the period of you just got to do it because it's right. But what I want to reveal, I hope, tonight, or lead you, if you're thinking in that way uh, slightly differently, is to point out that one of the dominant themes, or at least the subordinate themes, of the book of Deuteronomy is joy. This has stood out to me as we've read the book of Deuteronomy, just finishing it, I think it was yesterday, together in our yearly Bible reading. The book of Deuteronomy, what is it? It is the second giving of the law. It has a lot of law. It has a lot of exhortations to obedience. A lot of exhortations to duty. But if we miss... God's commands to rejoice, to experience joy, we're not truly really understanding the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, in about a dozen different times in the book of Deuteronomy, God exhorts his people to rejoice, commands them to rejoice, or holds out rejoicing as something implicitly that they should be doing. In Deuteronomy 12, in three different places, again, you can just make notes of this and go look at it on your own time. Deuteronomy 12, in verse 7, in verse 12, and verse 18. God expressly commands his people to rejoice, and he is commanding them to do it in the context of feasts that they were to be participating in In their religious experience, as a part of burnt offerings, sacrifices, and feasts before God. On three different occasions there, he says, you rejoice, and not just you, but you do it with those around you. It is to be a communal kind of rejoicing. In Deuteronomy 14, God is talking about the tithe. Again, what more than the tithe do we think is a duty of obedience. They were commanded to give a tithe as a returning to God of what was rightfully His. And we might miss that in Deuteronomy 14 25 and 26, God says, if the tithe, if Jerusalem, the place where God's name is, is too far away from you, you can't bring the tithe, you can't bring the tenth of your harvest. It's too far, it's too much. Here's what you do turn it into money. And then bring the money to Jerusalem and do what? Have a really big celebration. God says, whatever you want, whatever you desire, buy it and have a feast and celebrate. And you know what he says? Rejoice. Here's what he says. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice. Thou and thine household, your entire house, you rejoice before me when you give me the tithe. Wow. Deuteronomy chapter 16, God is, uh, in verse 11, is talking to them about the Feast of Weeks, a particular feast that they would be participating in. And he says that in, this, that in this presentation before God, and thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow... These are the most vulnerable of the society that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. You rejoice. In verse 14, he's talking about, of chapter 16, he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, the Feast of Booths where people were to come together and celebrate God's gracious harvest in, at the end of the harvest season. And here's what God again says. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates. Everyone needs to rejoice. It is a communal time of celebration and rejoicing in this great harvest that you have received. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. In fact, sometimes we miss that in Deuteronomy 28, you remember in the place uh, where God is giving the curses that will befall the children of Israel if they do not follow and obey? You say, well, what was the problem? Well, they didn't obey. They didn't do their duty. Listen to what God says in in Deuteronomy 28, 47. He says, here's why all these things are going to come upon you. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Why are all these curses going to come upon you? Because you didn't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Wow. How would God say you're doing in that? How would God say your report card would look in serving him with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Hmm. So what I'm hoping to bring out today is that the book of Deuteronomy is in significant part about joy, about rejoicing. And if we're going to understand the New Testament command to rejoice always connected to the Holy Spirit that he has given us, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, we need to understand and learn from this Old Testament principle and command toward joy in a way that I think will be like a schoolmaster pointing us to Christ. First of all, let's understand here this command This command in Deuteronomy chapter 26. We read in verse 11, And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. A similar formula to what we've already read about in the book of Deuteronomy. What is this command? Well, I want you to point out here, it's a very unique ritual. So let's just look at it. We're going to have to look at it together. I hope your Bibles are open in whatever form you have them. And look with me at verse 1. And it shall be, Moses commands them, of course, from God, when thou art coming unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein. So they've come into the promised land. This is anticipatory, by the way. Of course, they're not yet in the promised land. But Moses is saying, when you do come into the promised land, then what? That thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt put it in a basket, and shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. Now, pause for a minute. What was the place that God chose to put his name there? Jerusalem, ultimately, of course, was where the temple was. Now notice, "...and thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come unto the country which the Lord sware unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God." So pause there for just a moment. What's going on? The people of Israel, are, they're anticipating coming into the promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey, and that they will have agricultural, uh, an agricultural society. They will rely on subsistence, crops, and other things for their prosperity. And God says when you come into that land, the first harvest that comes up, the first fruits... Take them and put them in a basket and go to where I've called you, where my name is going to be placed, and go to the priest and give the priest the basket. Now, what are the first fruits? Kids, are you listening? What are the first fruits? The first fruits are effectively just the first things that you see growing at the beginning of the harvest season. So imagine if you have an apple tree out in your yard and the first of the apples that are really starting to be produced, those would be your first fruits. It's the sign that other fruits are coming in. So you can imagine that if you were in a land that had wheat, the first of the wheat that would be springing up and growing and producing fruit, in a sense, those would be your first fruits, And so the idea is God is saying when you come into the land and the first good stuff comes up, you don't wait until the end of the harvest. That's actually addressed later in this chapter from verse 12 on. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the first good stuff that come up. Now, why do you say, say, why is this important? Because I want you to see this is not the kind of offering that we normally give or that we're tempted to give. When we give, a lot of times we wait until the harvest comes fully in, and then we give what's left over. You see? The whole harvest comes in, and then we wait till see what we have left over, the surplus, and then we give a portion of the surplus. And that is our gift to God. Now I'm not being critical when I when I say this, but each month we get a monthly report of the offerings that come in from Dave McKean. Do you know the month of the year that always is by far the biggest in terms of our giving? Take a guess. December. Of course. I'm not being critical. I understand how that works. But a lot of times that's, that's consistent with the way we give. We wait to see where we truly are and then we give the extra. Think about what it meant in an agrarian society to give your first fruits. How did you make your money in an agrarian society when you were a landowner? Your crops. You got your substance, your money, your income win at the beginning of the year or the end of the year? The end of the year in the harvest. So what happens when you saw the first good stuff coming up and you collected it and you put it in a basket and you brought it to God? You had no guarantee that the rest was coming in. It was an act of faith. I'm going to take what's first and give it to God and trust that he's going to take care of the rest. Now, hold that thought in your mind, because I think it's going to be important when we come to understanding about rejoicing and joy, what this was a testimony of joy. So what they were to do, they were to take the first fruits in anticipation of what God was going to bring, and they were going to bring it to the priest. Then what they, were going, what, what they were going to do? They were going to offer it. We see they were going to take it to the priest. The priest, verse 4, shall take the basket out of thine hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. We'll come back to verse 5 through verse number 10 in just a minute. But in the middle of verse 10, this is what we now say, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. So the idea is they set it down before the altar, and they are then to worship. Now, what does the word worship mean? The word worship here in the Hebrew literally means to bow down. To bow down. Again, I want you to picture this. You, as an act of faith, take the first fruits, the first stuff, the first good stuff coming in the harvest. You take it as an act of faith and worship to God. You set it before God, offering it to him. And then I just want you to picture this. You get down on your face. You bow down before him as an act of humility and submission before him. And then what do you do? Notice verse 11. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thy house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. Then you get up and you rejoice. Now, what does it mean when you say rejoice? My best guess of what this means is that you have the same kind of feast that God has been encouraging in other places. Why do I say I think he really means a celebration, a communal celebration? Well, look. Rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto that house. And who is to participate in this rejoicing? You, the Levite, and the stranger. So the idea is that it's going to be a communal kind of rejoicing because people are participating. They're all gathering in. So, this idea you come and bring the first fruits, and those first fruits themselves that you have offered unto the Lord may now be a period of celebration used to really rejoice in what God has done, even before the harvest fully comes in. Okay, that's a unique ritual, isn't it? That's a very interesting ritual, and one that's a little bit foreign. To us, many of us maybe get paychecks every second week. That idea might be a little bit foreign to us of how that would work, but that is what God has commanded. Now, what I want to see secondly here is not just the command of this very unique ritual, but notice the confession that God directed each Israelite to make who was coming with his first fruit offering. Will you? Look with me at verse number five. So the priest has just taken the basket out of your hand, and he has put it before the altar of God. And now what do you say? And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, he commands you to speak it out loud. And what are you commanded to say? A Syrian ready to perish was my father. Now let's just pause right there. A Syrian ready to perish. Who was the Syrian who Israel is identifying as his father? Jacob. Jacob. A Syrian ready to perish. And do you know actually? who, the, that word ready to perish, it has the idea of wandering. You may see an alternate translation that says a, a wandering, a nomadic Syrian. And again, it could have the idea of they were at the point of death or it could have the idea of they were kind of appointed. They were just wandering. They were nomadic. So here's what they're saying a wandering, a person who had no real direction or stable place in their life was my ancestor. And then what? And he went down into Egypt, right, there's Jacob, and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey and now behold I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou O Lord has given me and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God now again I just want you to picture this very somewhat dramatic ritual you bring the basket and then God says this is what I want you to say now say it say it What are you confessing? What is the Israelite confessing in that moment? Notice, first of all, he's confessing bondage. He's saying, we came from nothing. A Syrian ready to perish, a nomadic Syrian, was my ancestor. And we were in great suffering. The Egyptians had us enslaved. In other words, What was the Israelite acknowledging? He was acknowledging our, the Israelites' need. We didn't come into this on our own. We were a group of nomads with no stable home. We were slaves. We were in bondage. And then what happened? It was a confession, not just of bondage. It was a confession of redemption. What did God do? Notice what he says God did. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. God brought us out when we had no ability to bring ourselves out. He heard, he looked on us, he brought us out. In other words, what is this a picture of? It is a picture, it is a remembrance of grace. I didn't deserve to be in this promised land. It was all him. My ancestor didn't deserve this. God was the one who brought him and us to where we are. I am experiencing something that I do not deserve when I'm in this land. And now what? It's not just a confession of bondage, of redemption, but it's a confession of provision. He says, and he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. He has provided abundantly beyond anything that we deserve. Now stop there. Again, bring it back into this picture. You are in the land for the first harvest. You see the, good, the first good fruit come up. You cut it down, you bring it to God, and you say, God, I want to make clear here our relationship. We were a nothing, and you made us something. We were slaves, and you made us free. We were entirely dependent on you, and you came through. Our ancestors were wanderers, And you have given us stability. And now, God, I'm taking the first fruits as an act of faith, and I'm giving them to you. And we're going to have a feast to rejoice in what you've done. That's the picture. That's the idea of what God is communicating to them. Now, what is this confession doing? What is the purpose of it? Do you see then why an Israelite would confess these things before God and then he'd fall down on his face before the altar and say, God, I didn't deserve any of this. I didn't earn your provision. You freely gave it. I am yours. That is worship. A worship is a humble acknowledgement of who God is and who I am. We have a real confusion in our churches when we think worship is predominantly something we sing. That worship is a time of our services. Worship starts with the heart attitude of dependence and submission on the God who has given me abundantly more than I deserve. It is a heart that bows before God in recognition of my bondage, of his redemption, and ultimately of his gracious provision. There's this unique ritual of a command. I'm leading you to rejoicing by causing you to remember what I've done, to respond in worship before me, and then to give yourself to rejoicing. Thirdly, what I want to point out is not just the command, not just the confession, but finally, some connections that I think will hopefully be very helpful for the way that you rejoice. Let's start, first of all, with what is specific. What is a specific kind of context? I want you to think for a moment about what God was doing. What was God doing when he said I'm going to have every year a feast of weeks and I want you to rejoice at that feast of weeks and celebrate what I gave you and then we're going to have a feast of tabernacles and every year I want you to rejoice at what I did for you here and then over here there's going to be this offering and I want you to rejoice not just you but your sons and your daughters too and your entire community what is God doing? Let me suggest to you that God is is pointing us to specific seasons of rejoicing that can be really significant moments of teaching and remembering for you and your children and your family. Again, point out here, where is this rejoicing coming from? There's a sense in there in which The rejoicing, the feasting, is coming from what you brought to God. In fact, what's really remarkable is when you realize that in the Old Testament, people brought the tithe, and what was the tithe for? The tithe was for other people, the poor of the land, to come in and participate in the feast with you. It wasn't just about you. It was about the community. It was about God's provision for the Israelites as a group, not just for you. In other words, your use of your material resources can be a specific provision of God for you to rejoice in. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. Sometimes God wants us to feast. To use our material, physical resources to reflect on his provision in a way that our family is going to see and understand. I will tell you this is one reason I think there are certain... Yearly kinds of celebrations, things like Christmas or things like Resurrection Sunday or other things that are fully appropriate and indeed helpful for a Christian to rejoice in and to teach one's children in. Children, this is a season we are specially remembering the faithfulness and goodness of God and we are rejoicing in it. Now sometimes we can look at the way we use money And we can be concerned, rightfully so, about using it selfishly. Am I just using my money selfishly on myself? Am I being a bad steward of what God has given me? But then we are remembering that in 1 Timothy 6, God, Paul tells us that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. That there is a way that we, for example, eat food that is a reflection of joy and gratitude toward him. God, this is from you and I am eating this as to you. And there is a way in which we bring our children and our family into, into celebrating God's physical provisions of us in a way in which we are communicating to them and teaching them that this is from God and we are rejoicing in the good things that he has done for us. Do you know there is a, a, a spirit of gratitude that you can cultivate in your home that will be contagious? A spirit of gratitude, and it's independent of how many material resources you have. I am, it's been really neat. Tabitha and I grew up very, very differently in the amount of, if you will, physical resources that we had. But each of us have seen a spirit of gratitude cultivated in our houses. I remember my father, one of the things that he was very um, thoughtful and sensitive about was always tying and connecting God's physical provision to us in the blessing and and the gratitude that we would have to God for it instead of just kind of spending money or doing things and saying, hey, great, we're going to go have a great time. The idea always was held before us, this is from God and you should be grateful to him. This is something that we can rejoice in rightly for what God has provided. Now, Tabitha grew up with 14 children, 13 other siblings, with a father with an assistant pastor's salary. There was not a lot of material provision in what Tabitha experienced. But do you know what Tabitha testifies to? Over and over again, their family saw God provide when it seemed impossible. And what did it do for them? It created a spirit of gratitude. A spirit of, wow, God, we can't believe what you came through with again. Here's the point. Whether God has given you significant material physical resources in your family or whether he's given you very few, what's the point? Cultivate a spirit of gratitude for what he has given you and exercise a spirit of joy in your family and in your house. One of the saddest things is when you sometimes hear testimonies from children who were raised in Christian homes. And they said, do you know what pointed me away from from my faith, my Christian faith? Is because I went to my friends' houses who didn't follow the Lord, didn't go to church, and it seemed like they were happier than my family was. Now, how does God want us to be? Deuteronomy shows us that God wants us to be cultivating seasons and a spirit of joy in the way we interact in the daily and monthly and yearly rhythms of life. Is your home a joyful home? overflowing in gratitude for what God has given you and contentment for who God is to you. May we always remember that specific encouragement, a a, a real rhythm of joy. But I also want to talk more generally. If God in the New Testament commands you always to rejoice, and we see such a hard time with that, What what is something we can learn from Deuteronomy chapter 26 to really be assessing and sharpening our own joy? Here's the first thing. The first thing is what is absolutely necessary to rejoice in your life is a submissive heart. A submissive heart. Remember what God said across verse 10 and into 11. You bring the basket, you set it down, you confess before me, and then you worship and then you rejoice. You worship and you rejoice. Friends, let this connection, I hope, be very clear to you tonight. A worshipful heart is a rejoicing heart. And a heart that is discontented by, by, by contrast is not a worshipful heart. Could we say it this simply? When you recognize that you aren't rejoicing, what I'm hoping that this will trigger in you is the next time you realize that, you should ask, why aren't I worshiping? I'm not in a good mood. I'm not content right now. I am really having a hard time. Immediate question, why aren't I worshiping? Worship and rejoice. They go hand in hand. You say, why do those two things go hand in hand? You can't disconnect the one from the other. The reason for this is because ultimately what joy, true joy is, is a right um, relationship, a right recognition of who God is and who I am. That's what it is. Now, the reason this is so challenging for us, particularly particularly in our day, is because... We focus really on two things in this world, this prosperous American society we have today. The one is we focus far more on individuality than on community. We focus on your superiority, your sovereignty as an individual, more than in what the Israelites understood, which is we, 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 God called our father. We came into the land And you know, the New Testament has the same idea. God chose us to salvation. God has a body that he's working in. Are you part of it? Yes. Are you an individual? Yes. But it's about us, corporately, together. God is gathering out of the world a special people for himself. And along with that individuality that our society makes an idol of today is also a sense of entitlement. I, not we, I deserve. I deserve. And I want to suggest to you that if you're feeling discontented, it may very well spring out of those two words, I deserve. I deserve. What happens when I am feeling a little bit down about something, about What so often is tied back to is what I think I should be getting. What God owes me. What others owe me. And I'm not getting it. And so therefore I am not rejoicing. But friends, stop right there. Ask the question, what do I deserve? Think about what God's confession was saying to the Israelites. They were bringing their first fruits to God as an act of faith. And what was God telling them to recognize? Your father was a wandering Syrian. The only reason you are in this land in the first place is because of what I did, not what you did. What do you deserve? And I just want to ask you this tonight, friends. In what area, whatever area of life you struggle to be content in, ask yourself soberly and seriously, what do I deserve in that area? What do I deserve? You say, I wish I had this, I wish I had that, I wish I had the other, and ask yourself about that area. What do I deserve? Do I deserve what I'm discontent about? And of course the answer is no. When you understand a right relationship between you and God, God, who are you and who am I? See, ultimately, a heart that is not rejoicing is a heart that is not submissive to who God is, And who I am. And that's why what is so often needed for us is just a reality check. This Israelite ritual was a reality check. God, let's make sure we're on the same page. I'm going to speak it out loud. Who I am and who my people are and who you are by comparison. And God, now I'm going to get down on my face and I'm going to worship. Because all of what I have is from you. We have to recognize the submissive heart. The world seeks to cultivate a sense of entitlement We should cultivate immediately a heart of submission. I don't deserve. I can rejoice in what you've given. Not only a submissive heart, but what will be very helpful to to cultivate a submissive heart is secondly, a remembering mind. A remembering mind. How do you cultivate joy? How do you cultivate a sense of worship in your life? You need to remember Once you get aligned with who God is and who you are, then what do we see from the Israelite? Here's who I am. Here's who you are. What did you do? You brought me into a land that flows with milk and honey through no goodness of my own. We talked last week about the pharisaical mindset that is about performance. How good do I do? Do you know my discontentments often spring from a pharisaical attitude? God I deserve better than what I'm getting. God, look at how well I've been doing. You know, I think this is a reason, actually, frankly, we see some people who reject a kind of biblical Christianity, walk away from it altogether, is when they adopt a view that really, if they just check these boxes, things are going to work out. I just need to do these ten things and my children will turn out. I just need to do these five things and my marriage will be great. And then they try to do those 10 things and their kids don't turn out the way they were expecting. And they throw the whole thing up and say, I deserve better than this. And they're angry and they're discontent and they're bitter. And they say, I deserved. And you know, the problem is someone needed to tell them, you don't deserve. I don't deserve. Because my relationship with God's about grace. It's not about debt. It's not about performance. It's not about me putting God in my debt to give me the life that I desire. What do I deserve? I deserve only what he sees fit to give me. How could Paul say, having food and raiment, therewith I'll be content. Give me food and give me raiment. I think all of us have that here tonight. Food and raiment, I'll be content. Why? Because he knew it's not about me. My life subsists on grace. Grace. I reference that passage from 1 Timothy 6 where Paul says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. What is our tendency? We get stuff and we get uppity. Why do we get uppity? Because we think we earned it. We think it's ours. Well, I worked really hard for it. Well, you may have worked really hard for it, but where did the talent that you have come from to work hard? Where did the situations you received that income in? Where did that come in? Put yourself on a a mountain in Malaysia and grow up in the 13th century and see what your hard work would have gotten you. You think you deserved it? You think it's owed to you? You think it's your performance? No, we are all debtors to grace, to the provision and sovereignty of God. Don't be high-minded, he says, but what? But and nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He gave it. Why would I start thinking that I deserve it? So in other words, not only does a submissive heart help to protect us against the discontentment that says I deserve more than I have, a remembering mind helps to protect us against saying, wow, look at everything that I got. I must have deserved it. God says, "Uh uh-uh, remember grace. Remember what came to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that you have received all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, and it did not come from you. So how are we going to rejoice? We need to worship. We need to have a submissive heart that is submitted to him and to his And who he is and who we are. We need to have a worshipful heart. We need a remembering mind. Remembering what God has done. And why we are dependent entirely on him. And then finally what we need is we need a speaking tongue. You want to be rejoicing? Have a submissive heart. Have a remembering mind. And have a speaking tongue. Think about what God said to these Israelites. You say it. Don't just think it. Say it. When you're feeling sometimes re, um, discontented, you and I just need to start talking even when we don't feel like it. You and I start, need to start singing even when we don't feel like it. And do you know sometimes when you start singing by faith, God's going to respond and you're going to have a submissive heart and a remembering mind and you're going to have joy? What do you think the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings you into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you to show you where your remembering mind is off, where your submissive heart is out of step, and then says, let's start talking about it, shall we? Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, People who are filled with the Spirit are joyful. Would you agree with me? You're filled with the Spirit in a moment. You're going to be joyful. And what does he say? But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you just got to say it. Whether you feel like it or not, say it out of faith. Start reminding yourselves when you're in a difficult mood, when you're in a discontented frame of mind, start reminding yourself about all that God has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who you were. You were a stranger from the covenants of grace. You were in, you, you were, um, you, you were in the slavery of sin and of Satan. He has delivered you out. Align yourself in a submissive heart of worship of who God is and who you are and what you deserve and, frankly, what you don't deserve. And then start speaking it. Start saying it. Start singing it. Start verbalizing who God is and what he's done for you. And when you do that, don't be surprised when suddenly you find yourself rejoicing. You find yourself responding because you've remembered who God is, who you are, and what he did to bring you to where you are. Don't forget, Deuteronomy is a lot about obedience, but it's a lot about joyful obedience. And may this week, we remember, may we respond, and may we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Father, how often we, how often I disobey that command to rejoice always. And again, I say to rejoice. Father, when we're discontented, we need a reality check. That's what we need. We need a reality check to show us who you are to, and show us who we are. We need a submissive heart. And we need a remembering mind to anchor ourselves in your grace, your undeserved favor to us in Jesus Christ. And we need a speaking tongue. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit of God who came so that we might have fullness of joy. It may be a fruit of what he has given us. May that be the experience of our lives even this week.